So we are live. This is the third session of a four-part series driven by Rabbi David Silver, Admission of Guilt, Confession, and Repentance. So we will be using sources from the Chumash today. So if you have your own preferred, you are welcome to follow along there. Otherwise, I will put a link in the chat and we will have the sources up on the screen for you. If you're joining us here on Zoom, we really do encourage you to turn on your camera if you're comfortable so that we can look around and see who's joining us. You are also encouraged to keep yourself muted unless it's a period of open discussion. If you have questions throughout or comments, you're welcome to put them in the chat here on Zoom. If you're joining us on Facebook, please put comments and questions underneath the video there. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, hello, good morning, thank you for being here. So without further ado, Rabbi David Silver. Thank you very much, good morning everyone. Um, okay, I wanted to pick up just where we left off last time and the focus today will be largely on the last chapter of Genesis chapter 50. Uh, but before we get there, there are a couple of other things to take care of. So we, um, we had been discussing the story of Judah in chapter 38, Judah and Tamar. And the point, uh, the main point I was emphasizing that in chapter 38, which is famously discussed because chapter 38 really comes right after the sale of Joseph in chapter 37, and the, and the story of Yosef picks up in 39. So uh, there were many who thought that 38 was simply a kind of interpolation, was simply put in there, but really is disconnected from the Joseph narrative. and was just sort of put in in this place, had to be put someplace for whatever reason. And I think uh, the argument that that is certainly not true, one that I've advanced and others before me, um, is pretty clear that chapter 38 is, is uh, put very specifically where it's put strategically because chapter 38 is the blueprint for the rest of the book. Apart from the fact that it has deep connections to what precedes it, it's a blueprint for the book. What this story is about, the larger narrative is about, and the question is, can in fact one create a community of different kinds of people who form one community? And in the book of Breshit, the focus is the story of Joseph, because in the story of Joseph, what Yaakov's mission or dream is, I would call it a mission, and he says it himself, is to build a so-called bayit, to build the house. And house has many meanings, but one of them, and probably the critical one in Genesis, is a kind of community. Can one create a structure in which every member of that community is included, different from each other, different roles, they don't always get along perfectly well, but can we create a community and more broadly a society of people that are different, they're not all the same, the differences are clear, the disagreements are clear, and yet we form one community. And that is the challenge in the book of Breshit for Jacob and Jacob's family, because in this family, which has been constructed through a very complicated uh, story of Jacob in the house of Ravan. Jacob wants to marry one woman, ends up with two or perhaps four. And there's all kinds of antagonisms and favoritisms. 
can from this one family emerge? That's the question. And in fact, one might say the low point of the story is in chapter 37, when the brothers conspire to kill Joseph. They throw him into a pit at the end of the day because Reuven says, let's not kill him with our own hands. In fact, he will die in the pit, but Reuven's intention was to save Joseph, was to bring him back to his father. So the brothers throw Joseph in the pit in which he will die, not immediately. And in the interim, something happened, but their intention was to kill him. And then the question is, what happened? So there's the, in chapter 37, Yehuda speaks to his brothers and says, they see a caravan in the distance. And Yehuda says, why should we kill our brother? What profit is there in killing him? And he's our brother. Let's sell him. Let's sell him to the Yishma'ilim, whom they see in it far away, see in the distance. And something happened then. According to one interpretation, which I don't think is the plain meaning of the text at all. The brothers actually sold Joseph. The brothers sold him. According to the better interpretation, the one that fits perfectly into the story, the brothers did not sell him, but rather in the interim, when they were contemplating selling him, Midianites came by, a different set of traders, pulled Joseph out of the pit, and they sold him to the Ishmaelim, who then brought him down to Egypt. So the brothers would have sold them, and in fact, they can be held responsible for the sale. Had they not sold them at all, he would die in the pit if no one had come by. And then Ruven goes back to the pit because his intention was to save Joseph, to bring him back to his father. And Joseph's not there. And Ruven says, he's missing. What, what is to be of me? If they had actually sold him, he wouldn't say that. Where is he? He's missing. Of course he's missing. We sold him 10 minutes ago. So obviously in the story, it would appear very clearly that he's, he's missing, that they perhaps were going to sell him. They were thinking about it. Maybe even they had decided to do it, but in the interim, somebody else does it. And the difference between the two interpretations is, is in fact, uh, if he's missing, then their obligation would have been to, to search for him and to find him. The word matzah appears very significantly in the story. So that's the question. The question is, can somehow the family be, be constructed or reconstructed given the story of the sale of Joseph? And then in chapter 38, we have the story of Judah, which is about the way one constructs a family. It's not the only way, obviously. But the point of chapter 38 is at the end of chapter 38, Judah has succeeded in creating a family in which every member, namely both of his sons, are included in the family. That's the story of chapter 38. Now, exactly how that works out is a fascinating story. It's not our topic now, but we'll have to take that as a given that it, by the time chapter 38 emerges, or ends, I would say, uh, we have a situation where Judah has two sons, one from Tamar, both of whom are equal members of this family. They have to be equal members of the family because the way the story is constructed, Judah has lost two sons. So each of the sons replaces one of the deceased sons. That's typically what happens when we have Yibum or Leverett marriage. So, and the person who makes this happen in the story is this mysterious Tamar. She's the one who gets Judah to take responsibility for the family. In the story, Judah, 
as we remember. His first two sons die. And he says, God slew them. So they're no good. And his third and remaining son, Shelah, he doesn't want to allow the third son to marry Tamar. He apparently blames her for the death of his two sons. So he says to wait, wait till he gets older, he's too young or whatever, with no intention ever of permitting his son to marry Tamar. And years pass and Judah's own wife dies and he sets out to, to go to the festival to shear the sheep, a time of great rejoicing. But Yenachem Yehuda is consoled immediately. And Tamar understands what's going on. She recognizes that she has not been given son number three as a husband. And she sets out to make things right. She dresses up as a prostitute and Judah sees her and he propositions her, doesn't know who it is. At the end of the day, they sleep together. After she demands payment, he promised to send a goat. I'll send you a goat. And she says, no, no, I don't accept that. I need a security right now. And he gives her staff and a seal and probably a cord, which means a coat, symbols of leadership, symbols of kingship in the Bible. And she takes these things and then she, she's pregnant. And Judah sends his uh, helper to retrieve these things, but can't find her. She's disappeared. She's gone back home, put back her widow's garments. And Judah, after one day, says to his friend, forget about it. We don't want to ask too many questions. It's embarrassing. Let her keep these things. Later on, a few months later, it's clear that she's pregnant. And she had, in fact, is betrothed to Judah's third son. He has no intention of ever allowing them to marry, but she's betrothed to him. That's what would appear in the story. So she's committed adultery. And Judah says, let her burn, take her out and burn her. And as she's being let out to be killed, she says, she sends these things to Judah. Hakendah, do you recognize these things? Who was the possessor of the staff and the seal and the coat? And now we come to the verse that we, is the critical verse for our purposes, Vayakher Yehuda. Yehuda recognized them. He said, so I'd come me many. She is more righteous than I. She's right. For I did not allow it. I did not give her to Shelo, my son. I didn't allow her to marry son number three. And son number three, that will be what we call reverent marriage. And if she has children, they would accrue to her, his two deceased sons. The point of the story here, without getting into all the details, is that in effect, what she's done, and this apparently is a given in the story, is that the leveret marriage later is rabbinically confined to the brother. That's the way they interpret the verses in the book of Devarim. But it would appear from this text and other texts as well, book of Ruth, for example, that it's the closest relative. So in the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah is not the closest relative as defined by leveret marriage. That's the deceased, that's the third son, that's the brother. But Judah is the second closest relative. In fact, one might say he's the array, he's the guarantor, he's the second. And of course, the idea of the array for Eravon figures prominently in the story. She demands an Eravon. And what Judah is saying, in effect, is she's what she's done is right. Her behavior was to, to allow the family to move forward.
Judah's own interest was in his prostitute. He had no idea who, who she is, nor does he seem to be concerned about building the family, or he's afraid to take a risk to do it. He's afraid to risk son number three. So from his perspective, it's a profane act. But from our perspective, it's a sacred act to build the family. And the point over here is that we have the verb Vayakem Yehuda, Judah recognized. And what we have been discussing last week was that this verb of Vayakem, to recognize, is one that's very significant in stories that precede this chapter 38. And really, it begins with the story of Jacob standing in front of his father who can't see, pretending to be Asa. And the Torah says that he was able to trick his father, he did not recognize him. So the idea of recognition, Jacob tricks his father and he does so by means of his mother taking the skins of the, of the, of the goat. In the previous chapter, after the brothers, Joseph is missing, I say missing and presumed dead. At the end of chapter 37, the brothers dipped the coat of Joseph in the blood of a goat, they slaughter a goat and they dip Joseph's coat in the blood of the goat, they bring it to their father. And they say to their father in the last verses of chapter 37, father, we found this coat, recognize it. Is this the coat of your son or not? And Yaakov of course is fooled by this. Well, it is Joseph's coat. And he says, it's the coat of Joseph. Joseph has been torn to pieces. So we have essentially, in the first story I mentioned, Jacob deceiving his father. And the previous chapter, it's Jacob's sons deceiving Jacob. And now in effect in chapter 38, it's Judah trying to deceive Tamar by promising to send something, namely his third son, but he has no intention of ever doing that. And Tamar is able through her deception, as it were, the grand deception, to get Judah to recognize First of all, that he's wrong in this instance. He has not behaved properly. He's exhibited no, no, no leadership. But beyond that, it's also a corrective of something very deep within this family. that has to be corrected if the family is to move forward. So that's the Vayakeri Yehuda, Vayomet Sadkamimani, and he confesses. So we have over here two things. We have a confession. And we have, and through the confession, we have a reclaiming of the of the coat and the staff and the seal, the symbols of leadership, which represent leadership. He, he was able, he gave them away, essentially, or he made virtually no effort to recover them. Of course, because he really isn't a leader at that point. But through the confession, he becomes a leader. He, he reclaims the symbols of leadership, but only through confession. So that's a very significant point. And the, the larger point, if one is studying the book of Breshik in general, is that the uh, test as to whether somebody has learned something or not, is whether in a similar situation, one can uh, behave in a way that demonstrates that something has been learned. That's what the Rambam says in his uh, book of book of repentance, Hilchot Shuvah, the laws of repentance, the ten chapters that the Rambam wrote, is part of his Mishnah Torah, and he says that's how you judge if someone has repented. Persons in a similar situation 
what does that person do in a similar situation? So in the book of Breshit, we have a situation later on, because remember chapter 38 interrupts as it were, the Joseph narrative, but of course it really is an introduction to the Joseph story. How in fact, if possible, how can this family be constructed? To which the answer is, in, you require two things for constructing the family in the book of Genesis. One is confession. And the second is responsibility. They come together in the Tamar story, the Eravon, three times the word is used. And then later in the Joseph story, after Joseph has uh, taken Shimon as hostage, as captive, he sends the brothers back. After accusing them of being spies, he sends them back with the food. And when they come back home, they discover money in their sacks. This money has been returned. And they're all frightened. What is this? Shimon is missing. We have extra money. Maybe Jacob thinks they sold their brother, which in this family is a distinct possibility. And uh, he doesn't want to permit Benjamin to go back to Egypt with the brothers. That was Joseph's condition. Send me the youngest brother as proof you're telling the truth. And Jacob refuses to do it. He's afraid. And the one who succeeds in convincing Jacob to do it is not Ruvain. His Jacob rejects Ruvain's offer. You can kill my two sons if I don't do it. Jacob says, forget it. And then Judas picks up. In chapter 43, Judah talks up. And Judah says, he waits till there's a whole discussion, there's a whole conflict in the family. Can't get into that. And then Judah says to his father, um, a little later on, first he says, listen, the only way we can go down there is if we bring Benjamin with us. And Jacob says, why did you tell him? Why did you say all these things? And they all argue, well, he asks questions. And then Judah talks up. And Judah says, listen, this conversation is taking us nowhere. Judah says, Shulcha hanar iti v'nakuma v'nelecha v'nechyev namut. Send the boy with me. We may live and not die. We and our children. And now the critical verse, anochi erevenu. I will be an orev. I'll be the guarantee. I'll be the surety. He has remembered what Tamar taught about the orev, about the Eravon. I am, I guarantee it, he says. And if not, if I don't do it, I am held accountable. I will be guilty. So that's what he says over here in chapter 43. And later, when the brothers go back to Egypt and Joseph once again puts this goblet in Benjamin's sack and the brothers return to Egypt, that's where we ended last week. And Judas says to Joseph, we have nothing to say. Joseph says, why did you steal my goblet? Which, of course, they did not. And they probably know they didn't steal the goblet because they also found the money in the sacks. They know they didn't take it. But it doesn't matter. It says, Judah, male daber uman nitztadak. Nitztadak is the reflexive of tzadi dalit kuf, tzadak, tzadkamimeni. God has found out our sins, says Judah. That's the verse we finished with last time. And the ensuing story, Judah speaks to Joseph, and he says, take me instead of Benjamin. Because, he says, in chapter 44, I am the Arev, I'm the guarantor. So take me instead of him. It's a long speech, a powerful speech. And Joseph, after hearing the speech of Judah, he breaks down, he cries. He says, everybody, everybody should leave the court except these people. And Joseph says, I am Joseph. 
So Joseph reveals his identity. And what allows Joseph, one might say even compels Joseph to reveal his identity, he can't restrain himself anymore. And no one is there when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Aniyo saved, Joseph says. So what Judah has done is put into play the two lessons that he learned from Tamar. One is confession. She is correct, she's right, I'm wrong. And the other is, together with this, responsibility. Those two seem to be linked. Confession and responsibility are linked together. So and it's interesting, by the way, that in the story of the confession of Judah in chapter 38, which is the great turning point in the book of Genesis, it is strategically placed exactly where it should be. In chapter 38, after the sale of Joseph, which is the low point, if one really questions, is it possible for people to live together? After all, the first set of brothers are Cain and Hevel. That didn't work out very well. So can it work out in the family of, of Jacob? And if it can, who will be the catalyst to bring this family together? And the catalyst is Judah. He emerges as the leader of the family and everybody needs a teacher. Everybody needs a Rebbe, he found one. Her name is Tamar and she teaches him and he puts this into play. And what's interesting is just one last detail about chapter 38 and there's so much more there. But in chapter 38, when Judas sends his uh, friend Hira to retrieve the staff and the seal, he sends him with the goat. He intends to pay, but she's disappeared. She's gone. And he comes back at the end of the day. And Judas says to his friend, right? He says the next verse. Um, uh, yeah, that verse. One of my favorite verses. Let her keep. Let her keep the staff and the seal and the coat. Lest we be, means an embarrassment. By that, I presume he means, start asking a lot of questions. Where's the prostitute? Where's the prostitute? Doesn't look good for us. That's not, it's not considered a good thing. After all, the brothers had said to you, their father in chapter 34, in the story of Dina, should he treat our sister as a prostitute? So that's something which is looked down upon. And Pendiel So he's concerned about being embarrassed. It's not worth the embarrassment. He says, listen, let her keep the staff and the seal. Obviously, if after one day he says, let her keep them, because it might be embarrassing. Obviously, the staff and the seal don't mean that much to a Yehuda. Pendiel the word of was appeared in an earlier story of the Torah, story when Esav comes back at evening time, he's very hungry, and he sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. Whatever you think of Jacob's behavior there. But the Torah says that Esav ate and he drank, he got up and left. So Esav squandered, made little of the birthright. Birthrights are for the future, said Esav. I live in the present. So he sold it for a bowl of soup. You know why? It's only worth a bowl of soup. It's not something he values. And the same thing over here. This kind of behavior is a demonstration. He doesn't value it. So what Tamar has to do is to get him to see the value, the necessity of responsibility, which comes together with confession. And she puts her own life on the line because she allows him the opportunity to deny. 
That's a very important point in the story. Just to make a public proclamation. His statement, Sadkami many may be public. That's possible. And if it is public, there's plenty of embarrassment. But she gave him the opportunity to deny. And apparently she understands, it's amazing, she knows him well enough to know he's not going to deny it. And he will, he'll step up and do the right thing. But that's the power of the story. And that's part of her deep insight. So he, through confession, you regain the symbols of kingship. What do they have in the Christian Bible? The last shall be the first. The one who's willing to be a slave. Judah says, take me as a slave. That one becomes the king. That's in the Chumash. When he says, take me as a slave, we know that he will become the king. That actually he's deserving of the staff and the seal and the coat. And uh, he gets back his coat. He, he, he regains the symbols of his, of, 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 his, of his leadership. So that's the story. That's what we got to at this point in time. So I wanted to now, in the time that we have, the main point will be to look at chapter 42 very briefly, and then uh, to look at the last chapter of Genesis. Okay, let me take, are there any comments or questions? Uh, and I'll be happy to. Uh, Neil, you have a question? I'm not understanding the question though. Sorry, <laughs> uh, thank you. I was wondering if this time the goat kinds of gets kind of gets cast aside. Uh, Yehuda um, gives up on delivering the goat and getting back the the symbols. Um, I'm I, to, as you were going through the Yaakov Yitzchak deception and the um, brothers deceiving Yaakov with the blood of the goat. It seemed to me that the goat was very much representing deception, and I was kind of intrigued that in this interaction, the goat is cast aside. We don't hear about the goat again. And ultimately the focus shifts to the symbols of family and responsibility. Right, I think that's the point that I think she succeeds in she's saying, I think the deeper point is you can't build something through deception. That's the truth of it. You can't build it that way. I mean, you may be temporarily be able to accomplish something, but in the longer, in the, in the long term, that's not the way to build anything. You build it on a foundation of truth, and many truths are difficult, and many truths are, you know, things people don't want to hear. It's always easier to, you know, to, to, uh, to dissimulate to a certain extent and to have truths and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, if you want to build a foundation, it's got to be on truth. And that's, I think that's true of every, every situation. I think to, to pretend that somebody is someone else uh, is never a path to creating a true uh, relationship of any kind, whether it's a political one, whether it's personal. So that, that's the point. The goat disappears because what she's saying is this is not the path, basically, and he understands it to his deep credit. I mean, what the book is about, essentially, I think, is about people growing, people learning. Uh, we learn from our mistakes, we learn from difficult situations, if we learn at all, it's not from the success. So I think that she is teaching him a very deep, and she's willing to, you know, she dresses as a prostitute, it's a holy woman, but she feels it, unfortunately, it's, it's necessary to do this 
to, it's the only way to do it because otherwise he will keep denying, him, you know, I'll send you my son when he grows up. And she says, well, he grew up 20 years ago. What do you mean he grows up? He's never going to grow up. So that's the point of the story. I think it was, it's necessary for him to behave in this way, unfortunately, but that's just the reality of, uh, of the situation. So yeah, the goat disappears in that sense. Um, yes, okay, Jennifer has a question. You're welcome. Jennifer, what's... What, what, what is the... Oh, oh, what I wondered was... Um... And thank you, I, you're such a wonderful teacher. Uh, what I wondered was, okay, if I have this right, Judah had already been married, pre-Tamar, he'd already been married, he'd had children who died uh, because, you know, God did that. So what I wonder is, how was he able to then even consider harming Joseph since he'd already experienced the loss of children? Oh, no, the story comes after the sale of Joseph, first of all. Chapter oh, oh, because somehow I thought Joseph it was 37, written before. 38. No, no, this is afterwards. And in fact, there are all kinds of links. Okay, sorry. A lot of time on the connection between those two stories. This comes makes, right after Joseph is sold. Right that makes a sold. lot more sense. Afterwards, right. Right after. Yeah, you mean even his marrying and the children being slain, that comes all after the Joseph. Right. Exactly. That's what I thought. And yet, okay, yes. thanks so right. much. It precedes the rest of the Joseph story, but it comes afterwards in the text. It's right after chapter 37, is chapter 38. I see. Um, Thanks yeah. so much. Okay. All right. Now I wanted to look at two things, primarily the last chapter, I think, which is very rich. But before that, I just want to point out one thing about confession in the Joseph story. Um, the brothers go down to Egypt to get food. They don't realize that Joseph is the viceroy of Egypt in their wildest dreams. They probably assume he's dead. He was in a desert or whatever. They made no attempt to find him. He is, in the words of the Torah, a man who was missing. And uh, they come down to Egypt, and Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize Joseph, but Joseph recognizes them. And that's an interesting verse. There, once again, we have the verb lahakir to recognize. And the Torah says, it emphasizes this, uh, in verse, in chapter 42, um, verse number seven, Joseph, Joseph saw his brothers and he recognized them by but he made himself a nochri, a foreigner. He acted like them, like a stranger. A nochri, which means an, uh, the other. So you're playing on vayakir and vayitnakir. That's in verse number seven. And the Torah repeats this actually later on in verse number eight, vayakir yosef etechav he recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And given the fact that the verb hakir has played such a significant role in Genesis, as we discussed with Judah and Tamar, this is a very important point. And I think the point of the Chumash primarily is to put a focus on the brothers. The brothers did a terrible thing. They conspired to kill their brother and they caused his sale. And now the question is, how can one make this right? It made no attempt to find Joseph, no attempt. Nor is there any sense in the story till now that they have any kind of remorse about what they did. 
Perhaps they feel bad that their father seems to be in perpetual mourning, but there's no statement. They try to console their father. He refuses to be consoled. And now we have the story of Joseph and the brothers. And this is the focus. One of the great dramas, obviously, of the Bible, of literature in general. Joseph remembers the dreams. I'm not going to get into the whole Joseph story here because that's not our topic now. Hopefully in the future, we'll study this together. But uh, Joseph uh, recalls the dreams and he accuses them of being spies. You are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land, the, the vulnerable points of the land. You're here to, to, to do us damage. No, that's not true. We came to get food. They say, well, we're, we're a family. We're, we're, we're honest people. Again, I'm not getting into all the details of the story because it's so rich. Not for now. No, says Joseph, no, you came to see the ervata arets, the nakedness of the land. You've come to spy out the land. No, no, they say. We're 12 brothers, one family. One, the little one is home with his father. And one is a nanu, is not. If they try and say no more, but I would say is not. I would say missing. He's not, not to be found. And Joseph said to them, Who dibarti rabimatem? Now, what does it mean, who dibarti So this translation says, It is just as I have told you, you are spies. But who dibarti lends itself to a different interpretation, namely, not what they're saying here, which is, no, no, it's not, not what you're saying is true, but what I'm saying is true. There's another possibility. That's what I mean to say. That, that's right. That's what I meant that you're spies. And let me test this out. Bring back the youngest one. It's a test. If you bring back the youngest, youngest one, fine. What would it mean? Who I shared? The, they said, send, send, send one of you and the rest of you stay in jail here with me, whatever. If, if you can't bring the brother back, I swear by Pharaoh, you are spies and presumably put to death. Fine. So keep, if you scroll down some more, right, he puts them into a, a waiting place, right? On the third day, Joseph says, you know something? I'm a God-fearing person. Send, I'll send you back with the food. But one of them has to be held hostage. And you can and, and, uh, bring him back. And you won't die. So in other words, if you don't do it, you will die. Well, I'll kill you. you kill, he says, I'm going to kill you. And now we have the interesting verse for our purposes. One said to the other, but, or in truth, or both. In truth, we are guilty about our brother. We saw him in anguish, in Sarah, in anguish, when he pleaded with us and we paid no attention. Therefore, this distress, this trouble has come upon us. The brothers link their present situation, the threat of death, the taking, the, taking them hostage for three days. Now, one of them has to stay in, in, in Egypt. They link it to the sale of Joseph. They don't mention the sale. They don't know he's been sold, presumably but they link it to the particular of the Joseph story. And it's very striking 
what they're connected to. We saw him in trouble when he cried out to us. We paid no attention. He pleaded with us, but we paid no attention. Shamano means we didn't pay heed. Therefore, this Torah has come upon us. So first of all, it's interesting that in the story of Joseph in chapter 37, there's no mention whatsoever that Joseph pleads with them. It says nothing of the sort. It simply says they took him, they threw him into a pit. The pit has no water. They themselves sat down to have a meal, maybe a banquet, who knows how far away. And they're eating, and then they see in the distance a caravan. But there's no mention that he pleaded with them, and they paid no heed. Here it mentions it. Now, it's interesting about, and this is when they start to, for the first time, it reminds me of the language of confession that we have in the Srichot and Yom Kippur. We are not, we, we don't say in the, in, the, in the service, we say, we don't say tzaddikim anachnu v'lochatana. We don't claim to be innocent and we have not sinned. Aval, but, or but in truth, anachnu chatanu, aval. Here we have the aval, aval. But in fact, we are guilty. But what's interesting is the following. We talk about confession, which is part of repentance. Confession is a verbal statement, but it's related to repentance. Change my ways. The first step is to recognize it's a problem. Okay, repentance has other dimensions to it as well. Recognize there's a problem, make a commitment for the future, uh, perhaps to request forgiveness as part of repentance or not. But it begins with recognition. And I did something wrong. So on Yom Kippur, for example, in the standard wrong confession, al-chet, at the end of the long list of the litany of various things, it talks about um, what I did wrong and it puts them into different categories. I request forgiveness for those things that if I did them wrong, I have to bring a sacrifice. For those things that I would get stripes for, malkot. For those things that I get death by the hands of heaven. For those things that I get excision, correct. For those things that are a capital offense. It lists them in that way. And actually it's coming from the Talmud. The Talmud speaks of the more heavy or more severe sins, chamurot, and also kalot, the lighter sins. There are different levels of sins, the different categories of sin. And the way you realize how severe it is, is by the punishment. The worse the sin, the greater the punishment. Capital offenses, those are the most serious crimes in the Bible. Idolatry, murder, adultery, these are the serious. But the truth of the matter is, that's one way to measure. There's actually another way to measure, which is not about what I did in the sense of the act being very severe. Sometimes the act is not that severe. Sometimes it wouldn't even fall under any of these categories, but it's, it's problematic for a different reason, because it's a reflection of something that's deeply wrong with me. And I'll give you an example of this, actually, in a story that we're not gonna get to today and have to figure out in the last class before Yom Kippur what we'll do. There's so many options here. But in the story of David and Bathsheba, Story of David and Bathsheba. So that's a story about murder. David kills the pious Uriah. And yes, he is pious. There's adultery. 
there's the cover-up. And then there's something else in the story. You know, when the prophet goes to David in the David Bathsheba story, chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan does not come to David initially and say you did something wrong. The prophet comes to David and says, King, there's something I want, a question I want to ask you, because the king is also a judge. And we have the following case. What do you think about this case? There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has many, many flocks. And the poor guy has just one little you that he purchased and cares for and feeds. It's like a member of his family. It's like his daughter. And then a stranger came to town. And the rich guy didn't want to take for his own flocks. So he took the one you and prepares it for the stranger who came to him. What should be the rule in that case, okay? And the text says, and David was exceedingly angry. I swear, he says, that person deserves to die and pay fourfold. This person has no compassion. And the prophet says to David, this man is you. Y-O-U, not E-W-E. This man is you. But what is that about? Now, why there's, a, why there's a parable here, a mashal, is one question. But I want to make a different point, which is that what the parable does, essentially, what Nathan does, is have David condemn himself. It's the ultimate confession. He condemns himself. And it's very appropriate for the story, because there's a detail of the Bathsheba story, which is extremely troubling. I mean, the whole story is troubling. Abuse of power, killing innocents, etc. All that's true. Working through third parties, cover up, you name it, right? But there's something else. that when David wants to, decides to kill Uriah the Hittite, which he doesn't want to do at first, he has other ways to solve the problem. That doesn't work. He writes a note to the general, which essentially says, kill Uriah. And he hands it to Uriah, who's going back to the battlefield. He has Oya carry his own death warrant. And the truth of the matter is that it's not murder, it's not adultery, but there's something about that act which is so problematic. Who does such a thing? And the payback for David is not just all the suffering that will follow, and it's plenty of suffering, but he has David carry his own death warrant. He has David condemn himself. And the point is, when you read the story, I know when I read it, that really bothers me, giving Uriah the note and relying upon the fact that he won't open it, giving his, giving his nobility. He's not going to open someone else's mail. He's not going to carry a note that's sent to the general. He knows he would never do that, would never do such a thing. And he relies on that to effect the death of Uriahachitim. So over here, what's interesting, what do the brothers remember? They threw him in a pit where he will die. But that's not what they remember, actually. They remember something else. They single out something else. He was pleading with us, and we paid no attention. And you picture this over here. He's in a pit where he's going to die. There's no water. And they're sitting 15 feet away, past the caviar, you know? which means not bread, but a meal. They're eating a sumptuous meal and their brother a few feet away will die of starvation. So the point over here is in terms of confession, which is coming to understand where we stand, where we are, 
it's not just measuring in terms of the severity of the act, but there's something else. And that is, it's about how we measure in general. Do we measure things by what we do? Is, it, is ethics about doing the right thing? It's certainly about that for sure, but maybe it's about being a good person. Maybe it's about the quality of the person. This is an ancient dispute or debate about what is the, who is the ethical person? Is it about qualities or about behaviors? In this verse, it's very striking that what they remember, standard confession talk. But what are we remembering? We're remembering the way we behave. It says something deeply wrong about us. How can we sit there when someone's crying for help and not pay attention? Pretend we don't hear. And therefore, this has come upon us. Now, what's interesting is, as an aside, why do they connect their present troubles to the Joseph story? Because presumably, in, no one is no one's perfect. Why do they assume that this is happening because of the Joseph story? I would suggest, what is the trigger? That's a question in confession. What gets us to think about doing things differently? In this particular case, it strikes me, I think the Midrash is picking up on this, a Midrash picks up on this, but Joseph says, you are spies. You're not here just to get food. You're here for another reason. You're here to, to see our weaknesses. You're here to expose us, to expose us. And no, 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 it's not true. Oh, yes, you're here to expose us. We're just 12 brothers. One is back with his 10 here, one back with the father, the little guy, and one is not. One is missing, a nenu. One is not to be found, says Joseph. That's what I mean, that you spies. That one, that so-called Enenu, maybe he's in the land of Egypt someplace or other. Maybe you plan to link up with this, with this, with this one brother, that's Enenu. Maybe he's, in, maybe he's right here making trouble. And maybe you've come down to connect to this uh, spy, to this mole that you've placed in the land of Egypt. And if that be true, of course, it'd be it's a terrific interpretation because of course the missing brother is in the land of Egypt. And in fact, they're talking to him. But the point is they're not looking for him. They're not searching for him. He's standing right in front of them. They're not looking for him. They don't recognize him. They make no attempt to recognize him. He recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. So perhaps that's the trigger. That's what gets them to think about I wonder about the one who's a nano. And maybe this is the cause of our, this is the beginning of a process of repentance, which is here you see it for the first time. Something shakes them up. Something shakes them up. You know, we're coming to Rosh Hashanah. And Rosh Hashanah, say, what is Rosh Hashanah about, you know? So many people would say, well, it's about repentance. But the truth of the matter is that if word about repentance, you would expect that to be reflected in our, uh, in our prayers. Yom Kippur is a day of atonement. So on Yom Kippur, we have slichot, we have requests for forgiveness throughout the whole service. We have confessions. We have several confessions. We have confess two different confessions in the prayers. We have a different confession in the Ila. Maybe I'll talk about that next week before Yom Kippur. But on Rosh Hashanah, we don't have any slichot, we don't have any confessions. 
So it's hard to believe that's a day of repentance because the, the service doesn't reflect that at all. It's not about a day of repentance, but it's the beginning of the days of repentance. Because what it's about is standing before God and hearing the shofar. And the shofar is a cry. It's an enthronement instrument. It enthrones God as king, but the king is also a judge. It's but God remembers. And that's the idea of judgment. So it's the beginning. The shofar is a call to repentance. The Rambam writes about this, and I don't think it's a drush. I think it's actually, it actually is a very significant piece of what the shofar is all about. It's the beginning of the 10 days, but suddenly you find yourself being judged, suddenly. And then begins the process of repentance. And you say, suddenly you feel something is not right. You can't even say what it is. You feel something's wrong. And then begins the process of trying to figure out what it might be. How does one correct it? Can I correct it? What should be corrected? What do I keep? What do I let go? So that's the story over here. Something has to trigger it. In the case of the Joseph narrative, it's what he says to them, apparently that triggered it. That's what I meant that you spies. That's what I meant. Okay, I'll let me take some comments or questions now and then we'll move to the last part of the last half hour or so. Yes, Sandra, you had something to say? Where's Sandra? Here I am, thank you. Yes. Um, uh, Rabbi Silver, um, if I can, um, it, it, it may be a little um, uh, off, off topic, but often you bring in either books or movies and, and point out how they, um, they could be written with the pen of, of the author of Samuel. Uh, uh, and I was, I've often thought this, and, and if you think it's apt, I think it, it could be just so illustrative for everyone. So there's this movie, this famous John Huston movie, Western, called The Searchers, um, where uh, um, the, the, the brothers and cousins and the entire family spends the entire movie, and it's long, three hours, searching for their lost sister. And of course, when they find her, they don't recognize her because she was kidnapped by the Indians and has become an Indian girl. And I, I, I think this so frequently that this was just really lifted, lifted from the story. But what John, John Wayne and the MGM stock actors and John Houston got right was that their agony at the beginning of the movie when, when everyone else is dead and they're crying over her grave is they make a decision that she's not going to be a nano and they're a nana and they're not going to be satisfied with the family without her. And that they say, no, we have to go and find her, even if it takes our life. And, and one could claim that their, their having been gone from the homestead when the Indians came was their fault, all this stuff. But it seems like it's just lifted, just lifted from 37, 38, and uh, right here in Genesis. And I just wanted to, to bring that up. And, and if anybody has the opportunity of seeing that movie and looking at it through, through your eyes and the eyes of what we've learned today, it's just... It's, it's enriching. I think in terms of the movie, actually, I saw that movie years ago with John Wayne, yeah. Uh, the, um, right, I think that actually it connects in a different way to what I'm gonna come to about what happens when you find somebody. Um, mm -hmm. because you, the person that you find may not be the person that you're looking for. And, exactly, uh, and, and in fact, they're, they, they, they're, they're stunned to the point of horror 
that this girl has become an Indian, just like, you know, they can't believe that Joseph has become, you know, amidst the, the, the archetype the three. The question and the larger question in the Joseph story, which is not a topic per se, but it's, we'll get there someday, I hope, is who is Joseph? That's a very important question. Uh, I wanted to deal with that now in the time we have remaining. And that's chapter 50. Chapter 50 is the last chapter of the book. Last chapters are always important. Uh, we started with the beginning, with really the first story of the book, which is the Garden of Eden, the lack of confession. And then we come to chapter 50. I don't, I don't know how much we're going to be able to finish today, but this is the culminating chapter of Genesis. And as such, it requires very, very careful reading. It always does, but this in particular, to try to understand this and how it relates to our topic of confession. So the point of chapter, the first part of chapter 50 is the description in the Torah of the burial of Yaakov. Yaakov has made his Joseph promise and the brothers promise not to bury him in the land of Egypt, but to take his body back to, uh, to the family grave in Marat uh, where Abraham and Sarah buried, Rebecca and Isaac, Leah is there. And we have um, as well, now Jacob says, I want to be buried there as well. And it's not so simple. It makes Joseph swear he's going to do it. Pharaoh's not happy about it. He has to promise to come back. Pharaoh sends a whole army with Joseph, maybe to ensure that he does come back. The brothers go, etc. And they return from uh, Canaan uh, back in chapter, in last chapter. And it says in verse number 14, that in verse 14, Joseph returned back to Egypt with the brothers and all that went up with him to bury uh, his father. And now we have verse, beginning in verse number 15. And this is, I think, very striking. And you know, the point about the stories, Rashi presented us in the beginning of his commentary, and many followed Rashi's cue on this, that the Torah basically is a, is a book of laws. There are stories as well, but fundamentally, as Rashi presents it at least, in many of his interpretations on the Chumash, it's a law book. And the Ramban disputes this. The Ramban certainly knows very well about the various laws, etc. One of the great experts ever about that. But it's not just about the war, says the Ramban. The stories are equally important. It's a book of stories. I say, with the, with, in the world of Hasidut, the stories take a very central place. And the stories are different than the laws. The laws are general rules for what people, generally speaking, should do. But the law does not take into account a particular person. That's the, that's the problem, that's the weakness of, of laws by, by, by its very nature. And the stories are about people. Everybody's different, every relationship is different, and they tend to be incredibly complicated and quite unique. So here we have the following story. The, everybody's returned from the land of Canaan, they buried Jacob. And now the brothers, by Yeru, the brothers see, of course they see, they understand, they perceive that their father has died. Vayomu, they said, Lu yistamenu Yosef. I would say, who was what if, or perhaps, possibly, Joseph Yistamenu. Satan means to hate us. And it's interesting that the word Yistamenu 
appears one other place in the book of Genesis in a very striking parallel. But the brothers say, perhaps Joseph, well, he may translate, bears a grudge, could be, and repay us for all the evil that we have done to him. So the brothers think that Joseph, even though Joseph fed the family now for, for many years, for many years, he's fed the family. But the brothers think that Joseph's going to pay us back, and it becomes clear that they think he plans to kill them. That's clear. So they want to avoid, they're afraid of retribution. And because they're afraid of retribution, they are going to send a message to Joseph, uh, giving Joseph the instructions of their father, Jacob. We'll get to that in a minute. But why do they assume such a thing? In other words, why do they assume that Joseph still bears a grudge and plans to kill them? And what's interesting is that actually, they think this perhaps because of what Joseph said earlier. Earlier, when Joseph revealed his identity to the brothers, Ani Yosef says, don't be, says, don't, don't be, uh, don't be sad about it. This is part of God's plan. He says this earlier, part of God's plan. And he says, don't tell my father I'm alive. Beginning of, after Judah's speech, tell my father I'm alive. And um, tell my father I will feed him and his family. I will feed him and his family. Now, Joseph did not say in that section, I'm going to feed you. He said, I will feed him and his family, which could be interpreted as, I love my father. I've asked about my father several times. I'm going to take care of my father. and Everything my father cares about, I'm going to take care of. But now Jacob has died. So the brothers are saying to themselves, well, he cared about his father, but his father's not around anymore. And actually, the verb was stone, istomenu, appeared one other place in Genesis. It appeared in the story of Esau and Yaakov. After Yaakov took the blessing that was supposed to be given to Esau, Isaac had intended as such, and Jacob took it. By Yistom Esau at Yaakov, and Esau by Yistom. And Esau said, When the days of mourning of my father come, after my father dies, I'll kill my brother. Now that's precisely what they're afraid of over here. Now that the father's out of the picture, I wouldn't want to hurt my father, but he's out of the picture and he's going to pay us back for all the evil that we did him. So first of all, you see that they feel, they're still thinking about the evil that we did him. Even though Joseph said earlier, what, what's so bad? And look at Joseph, look how important he is. I mean, he's the viceroy of Egypt. He's one of the most powerful people in the world, but they don't see it that way. Perhaps because by the time chapter 50 rolls around, Joseph really doesn't have that much power anymore. Joseph has not been allowed to leave the land of Egypt. Joseph essentially is a slave at this point. In any event, they're afraid of what's going to happen, but they don't go directly to Joseph. Rather, they send a message. Our father commanded, he left instructions before his death. He told us to say this to you, Joseph. Say this to Joseph. And how we have actually a confessional language. It begins with the word honor, 
Maybe next week I'll talk about honor. The confession of the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Kachayomer, in the Avoda, the reenactment of the service of the high priest on Yom Kippur, and the priest would have confessions, three confessions. In the text, these the Ashkenazic, the Kachayomer, this is what the priest would say Honor Hashem, Honor Hashem, Honor, I beseech you. The word honor is interesting. Notice that the word na appears several times. Ana, sana, and again sana. Three times the word please, 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 please. Say this to Joseph. This is what our father said. Forgive the brothers for their sin, for their trespass and their sin. They did evil to you. So now please forgive. It's not clear whether that's what Jacob is saying or they're saying. Forgive the sin of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph cried as they spoke to him. Now, did Jacob ever say such a thing or not? Are they making this up? But did Jacob actually say this? So it would appear from the text that he didn't actually say this because they, they're saying this because they were afraid. It's possible he said it. But even if he didn't say these particular words, it's clear from what Jacob says in chapter 48, chapter 49, that this is his intention. I'll get to this later. This is a very, very important point about confession here. Um, so, yeah. So the point is that Joseph cries when they speak to him. Joseph is crying when they speak to him. This is not the first time Joseph cries. In the Joseph narrative, he cries four times. The first time he cries is when he hears the brothers saying to each other, we are guilty we didn't hear our brothers cries. We pay no attention. He cries. He cries when Benjamin comes down to Egypt and he meets his true brother, the son of his mother and father, cries. He cries with Judah's great speech. Um, when Judah says, take me instead of Benjamin. And he cries over here as well. Joseph cries again. And here, I think there's a very important point about the Joseph story. When you read the Joseph story, and many have commented about this, it's not clear in more than one place why Joseph does what he does, why he puts the goblet in Benjamin's sack, why he returns their money to them. Why does he behave the way he does? And the point is that the ambiguities in the Joseph narrative, in my view, come from the following point, that the text presents Joseph in two different ways. He is the viceroy of Egypt. He assimilates into Egyptian society. He named his first son Menashe, which means forgetfulness. He's married to the daughter of an Egyptian priest. He dresses like an Egyptian. And the question is, who is he? Is he an Egyptian viceroy? Or is he Joseph? Is he one of the brothers? And I think in point of fact, is an inner conflict in Joseph. There's an inner contradiction. And the crying is about an inner Joseph who connects to his brothers. And the question, of course, is when you read the Joseph narrative, which of these two Josephs will predominate? Is it the Joseph who named his son Menashe? I forgot my father's house. I'm a self-made man. Or is it the Joseph who sees himself as part of Jewish destiny, sees himself as Jacob's child? That's the larger question in the Joseph narrative. And here he cries as they speak to him. He may cry as a, out of a sense of connection to these people. He may cry because he feels, he recognizes how, how 
powerfully they regret what they did. And the next verse is even more striking. His brothers came, went to him. Take us as slaves. We're prepared to be your slaves. Because the alternative is to kill them. And now we have Joseph's response. So here we have a confession. Now, it's coming out of a sense of potential retribution, as often is the case. Why do people change? Because they're afraid of the consequences if they don't change. So it comes out of a sense of fear. And that's very real. That's what, that's what begins the process. Joseph cries, and they're willing to pay a price as well. It's also interesting. And that, I'm sorry, and I'm off the hook. They're willing to be slaves. We are prepared to be your slaves. Says Joseph, don't be afraid. Am I a substitute for God? Now, the question is how you read that verse. Am I a substitute for God? It says, You may have thought to do me evil. He reassures them, don't be afraid. I will sustain you and your children. I'll continue to take care of you. He consoled them. And he spoke to them tenderly. That's how I would translate it. So here it's actually very interesting. How do we read the words, am I in God's stead? Hatachat Elohim Ani. And what he seems to be saying on the first level is, look, whatever I may think, this is God's plan. This, God has arranged this. So yes, you may have thought evil, but at the end of the day, you are in, in consonance with God's plan. If this is God's plan, I accept God's plan. I can't supersede what God wanted. It's not in my control to do such a thing. And therefore, I can't harm you. I can't harm you. I will continue to do the right thing, etc. That's one way to read it. I think that's a good way to read it, but there's another way to read it as well, which has takes it's a different tone to it. Hatachat Elohim Ani can be seen as a kind of confession. Because in point of fact, if there was anybody in the Bible who plays God, it's got to be Joseph. And pretty much says it straight out. When, when people have dreams and they go to Joseph, Joseph says, I hear you interpret dreams, says Pharaoh. No. Only God can interpret dreams, says Joseph. Tell me your dream. So, yes. God interprets dream. Joseph makes that statement in jail with the baker and the butler, makes the same statement to the Pharaoh, but, 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 it can be seen as a confessional statement. It's a confessional statement. Yes. So Simba points us to the story of when Jacob speaks to Rachel in chapter 30. Over there, are they the same or different? I'll have to leave that question aside. It's a good question. But over here, I think one can read it as, given what Joseph, as Joseph has behaved his whole life, what Joseph is saying is, I'm not God. I, I, I must accede to God's plan. Whatever you may think, whatever I may think, I know you intended evil. And then you have something else which is very striking. It's not left just at that, but that's very powerful. He consoles them. And he speaks, you know, they say, kindly or tenderly to them. 
So he's making an attempt not just to say, okay, forget about it, but he's actually proactively reaching out to them, not just reassuring things will remain the same, but he's consoling the penitent. Joseph consoles the penitent. And here, I wanted to conclude with the following thought. Just wait one second. Yes, so if we look at, um, we look at the continuation over here, it says Joseph, Joseph returned to Egypt. It says again, right? Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw it, came to see the third generation of Ephraim. The sons of Machir, the son of Menashe, were born upon Joseph's knees. Leave that out for now. Interesting verse. And now we have Joseph's best speech. Joseph said, I, 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 I am dying. God will surely notice you. Take account of you and bring you up from this land to the land that God has sworn to give to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And Joseph imposed an oath on B'nai Israel, on the children of Israel, on his brothers, the children of Israel. When God redeems you, takes account and redeems you, carry up my bones from here. And here I would say, is another element of what I would call confession. It's really the last confession, the confession of the era, which is not so much what I've done wrong, but confession in the sense of coming to terms with who I am. And what's striking is this last statement over here. And this is, I think, very important point about these confessions. And that is that up to this point, if you ask Joseph the question, Joseph sees himself as God's instrument. Joseph is that. Joseph says it. This is God's plan. But what is God's plan? So up to this point, Joseph said it twice. God's plan was, I come down to Egypt to take Amrav to feed a great people. And I would add that Joseph not only feeds the, his brothers, Joseph feeds the land of Egypt and other lands as well. Joseph is a universal character in the story. Joseph is big. Joseph takes care of the whole world, not just the family. He may give them some preferential treatment, that's possible. But Joseph sees himself as one that was sent by God, to feed the great nation. Joseph feeds all of Egypt. Joseph feeds the outlying lands as well. That's up to this point. But after the brothers come to Joseph, he consoles them. He speaks tenderly to them. He says, I'm going to die. Elohim pokod yivkod etchem. Pokod yivkod is striking because the word pokod can mean to remember. It can mean also to hold it accountable. Pokod avon avot abonim. God visits the sin of the parents upon the children. Pokod avon avot. So here it may carry with it that sense. God is going to, God has an accounting. Someday God is going to bring us up from this land to the land that God swore to Abram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. This is a verse that Jacob could have said. Jacob did say it, in fact. Take me back to the sacred land, the land in which God speaks. Take me out of Mitzrayim. Joseph named his first son Menashe, forgetfulness, for he said, God has enabled me to forget my father's house. 
and all of my suffering. And the same Joseph at the end of Genesis says, someday God will redeem us from this land. It's right. We need redemption from Egypt. And God will bring us to the land that God swore to give to Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. God swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then Joseph is saying is, since, since I am God's instrument, and since I've played God, I'm going to play God in a different way. I'm going to make you swear now. And what is the oath? And when someday God redeems us, you bring me with you. And what Joseph comes to understand over here is two things. First of all, that actually, at the end of his life, he understands the deep truth about the story of Joseph. It wasn't just about, or even primarily about, uh, feeding the people, sustaining them in that sense. But the going down into Egypt is the covenantal process. Yitziat Mitzrayim is the covenantal moment. And going into Egypt and suffering with the Geirut and the Abdut and the Inui, the covenantal terms, the one who brought us down to Egypt, and we brought ourselves down by selling Joseph or causing his sale. But at the end of the day, Joseph is God's instrument in a completely different way, in a covenantal way. And here the point is, and that's what Joseph comes to understand, the person who pulls all the strings comes to understand nobody pulls all the strings, that actually Joseph needs them. He needs them to redeem Joseph. That's a very important point. And here's the deeper point about confession. The point over here is that the book of Genesis ends with two confessions, two, 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 two acts of self-awareness on the part of the brothers, the depth of their uh, mistakes, their sins, but it also ends with Joseph. And the point of fact, the deepest truth about the Joseph story and Jacob understood this, is that the brothers need Joseph and Joseph needs the brothers. There are situations, sometimes you get in a fight with somebody or whatever it is, all kinds of different scenarios. And you say, you know, somebody made a mistake. I'm sorry about it. I made a mistake. Forgive me, I'll, make, I'll, make, I'll, I'll try to make it right. And goodbye. And that's the end of it. There's no need to have a deep relationship. No. You want to be fair with all people. Peaceful coexistence. Yaakov and Esau. Esau, I harmed you. I wronged you. Take my gift. Maybe we can walk together. No, thank you. I can put some people with you. No, thank you. We go our separate paths. But I don't want to leave it in that way. I did, I, I did hurt you. I want to make it right. Goodbye. But there are other situations where you can't say that. And one of those is the story of Jacob's family. Jacob's mission is to build a house. And Jacob's house requires every member of the house. And the, perhaps the most important one is Joseph. You can't have the Jewish people without Joseph. And you can't have the Jewish people without all the tribes. You need Judah, you need all the other tribes. So in this case, you can't walk away from it, actually. In this case, you need Judah and you need Joseph and you need them all. And Joseph never really understands that till the end. At the end, he understands it, and it comes with something else, which is that nobody is fully self-sufficient. And that is, I need you, says Joseph, because when it comes to the destiny of the people, covenantal destiny, the promised Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, by a covenantal community, you're part of it, I'm part of it, we need each other. And I can't bring myself out of Egypt. In point of fact, Jacob was the last one to, to leave. Someday God will, in fact, 
Someday God will redeem us, yes. Someday God will settle the accounts. There is a sense over here that there remains a certain amount of tension between Joseph and the brothers. Maybe it'll always be there. The story of the Bible is about the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom. It's the messianic dream that someday we're one. But in point of fact, there are divisions. People are different, people don't get along. In this particular case, in this situation, they need each other. So Joseph comes to understand his own limitations at the end of the book of Genesis. Now, of course, Joseph said himself in a prophetic statement, someday God will redeem us. We don't lose sight of the fact that the last verse of Genesis is the last word in this book is Mitzrayim, a book which began with the Garden of Eden, ends with Mitzrayim. On the other hand, he was placed in an ark, a coffin, an aron. the ark of the Bible, the ark of the Torah is something that's portable. The rods never leave the ark. You can always tread. He's waiting to be redeemed. It's a matter of time. It's a matter of when. But the book of Genesis, though it ends with the word Mitzrayim, ends on the hopeful note that people can actually get a deeper understanding of themselves, their place, and their relationship to others. It's hopeful. The Torah is not a wildly optimistic book about human nature, clearly, nor is the Bible, but it's possible. It's possible at least to make the attempt. So that's how this book ends with the, I would say the dual confessions of the brothers on one hand and Joseph on the other. We'll stop at this point. Uh, this Monday evening is Rosh Hashanah. There is a custom when we ran the Drisha Minion, maybe someday we'll run it again, who knows, but 40 some odd years. And then just, just before Rosh Hashanah, we would chant a, um, a little poem that the Edot Mizrach chant, Achot Ketana, my little sister. And um, it's very powerful. And it has its, as its refrain, the year and its troubles should come to an end. Just as Rosh Hashanah is beginning. And the last line is, the new year and its blessings should be upon us. So I wish all of us, it's been a difficult year for so many people. We continue to struggle in many realms. And we yes, cry to God to give us a healing and a blessing for the new year. So we do meet next uh, Sunday, which is just before Yom Kippur. Thank you. If anybody has questions, um, you can send me emails, dsilber at risha.org. Thank you, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a wonderful class Thank and for so everyone much. else for joining our learning community. Um, I would like to mention that the Stanley Rudolph Memorial High Holidays Lecture will also be happening next Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern. You can learn more about that and register as well as check out some other upcoming offerings that might be of interest to you and others in your life. That's at, at one o'clock, right? No, I, I, that's at one o'clock. Yes. It's one o'clock next Sunday. Yes. Right. So you can come to the last session of this class, have a little lunch break, and then head over to the lecture, which will also be on Zoom. So very convenient. You, you don't have to uh, schlep around too much. Um, but we look forward to seeing you next week, next year. Shana Tovah.